Um, you've dialled into the webinar. It's the WAM Leaders 2022 Interim Result Webinar. Um, this is your company. And look, thank you all for sending a lot of questions in. We really appreciate it. Uh, any questions that we haven't been, won't be able to cover on this webinar, please, you know, um, we'll get back to you or, or contact us later. Um, I'll give you just a little bit of a pricey of the result. And then you know, we'll really go to the WAM Leaders A team. And that's led by portfolio, Lead Portfolio Manager, Matt Helped, um, you know, Portfolio Manager, John Ayub, uh, and uh, Equity Analyst, uh, Anna Milne. And, and they'll really, you know, they're, they're the guys that do all the hard work. They manage the money on your behalf. And the, the fantastic performance over the last um, you know, three or so years is really a total credit uh, to that team. In terms of the result for the six months you know, just gone, that's the period to 31st of December 21, the portfolio was up 9.6%. You know, and again, very, very strong outperformance. And that's you know, an outperformance of 5.8%. And, and that is incredibly difficult you know, to get uh, or to outperform in any market, but also outperform when you're focusing on, you know, the large cap, undervalued, you know, growth companies. It's, it, it, is, it, it is a big challenge and I'll take my hat off as a shareholder like yourselves, you know, to the, the team that I just talked about earlier that, that has delivered this performance. Uh, in terms of the performance for the 12-month period, that's the calendar year, again, um, a solid performance. Yeah, that's yeah, up 28.3%. That's outperforming the index by over 10%. It was actually a little over 11% outperformance. Uh, and that over that period, yeah, the team really was uh, um, very exposed, yeah, well, well exposed to the equity market. Um, and they were nearly a little over 96% exposed, uh, holding uh, just a little under 4% in cash. In terms of the dividends, you know, the great thing is, you know, the team has delivered you know, strong performance over a, uh, a good period of time, which has really built up you know, the profit reserve. Now, ability to pay dividends is a combination of you know, profit and also um, at any you know, to, for those dividends to be fully franked, it's what tax we paid or what dividends we received that are fully franked. But in terms of the profit reserve, a little over four years um, of this current dividend rate that we got in the profit reserve, that's a little over 32 cents, 32.6 cents, which is fantastic. Um, and you would have seen the interim uh, dividend, a, a really solid increase. You know, WAM leaders, a couple of years ago, a lot of companies were cutting dividends. WAM leaders didn't. They kept increasing them. And so it's off a higher increased dividend base. But, you know, because of the strong performance um, by the investment team, we've been able to, the board's you know, been able to increase the dividend by a little over 14%. And that's, you know, to give a fully franked interim dividend of four cents uh, fully franked. So normally when we, what we pay in the interim, you, you assume in the full year. Um, and as, as you'd see, we've got a, you know, that obviously depends on market conditions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we're in a, you know, a very strong position to do that. What I'd like to do now is just to um, pass over to Matt, who will take you through um, you know, what he's looking at, what he's doing. Obviously, it's been an incredibly challenging period. And uh, let me pass over to Matt. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. And thanks to all the shareholders on the call. Um, and, and for your continued support, I think, uh, WAM leaders, we're approaching our six-year anniversary coming up. So uh, just like to extend uh, our thank you and continued support of all our shareholders um, I thought I'd touch on, obviously, there's a lot going on at the moment, but this year really can be categorised as a tightening year uh, as we move away from that incredible policy support we saw uh, during COVID. This year is all about uh, the path of interest rates, how fast will they go up, and where does the terminal rate or the neutral rate, or, or put more simply, where do, where do the central banks stop um, when they raise their rates this time around? Um, the key, can, key thing out of this is we think the central banks or the forward expectations are a little bit extreme in time. We think the forward rates into the market will come down. So especially in Australia, um, there's a, over a four interest rate hikes in the forward curve over the next 12 months. We think this 
is unlikely to eventuate. And in the US, which is predominantly the biggest driver of all um, equity markets and all asset classes, uh, the interest rate hikes are probably a little bit aggressive too. And what the effect of interest rate hikes are is they pull the um, discount rates, they push them up um, and put pressure on equity prices. So um, the other thing we've seen is a flattening of those um, interest rate curves. So rather technical um, when you look at it, but the, the one-year, one-year rate and the one-year, 10-year rate, which is basically the one-year rate in one year's time and the one-year, uh, the 10-year rate in one year's time, they have actually inverted. So the bond market is saying the interest rate path the Fed are on is too tight and will we'll, uh, really growth will falter. So we think the conditions for equities are pretty tough. Um, now, when you throw Ukraine into the mix, obviously um, putting aside the humanitarian issues, um, the financial implications, what are they? The initial uh, thoughts are inflation will be higher. So the commodities you would have seen have run up. You know, John will touch on those later. And also growth will probably slow down too. So it's more of a stagflation environment. So when you throw that into the mix, the risk is a dovish tilt from central banks. So far, the Federal Reserve members are remaining hawkish. The ECB overnight, the European um, central bankers, they are slightly tilting dovish. So in the short term, there is a potential for a dovish tilt before we get back to the more hawkish environment. So overall, our take for equities in 2022 is it's going to be pretty tough. Uh, the things driving equities are risk-free rates, which should go up. Uh, growth rates, they should decline. And the equity risk premium is probably going to be hovering around the same level um, as we see. So a couple of the factors are going to be negative. But even in this environment, we think there's great opportunities. Um, the, the process we have in WAM Leaders allows us or gives us a framework to perform in all market environments. We don't care, um, you know, whether it's value growth. Um, the framework we have is really flexible. So we're, we're quite confident in any market environment to continue the our performance. Um, I'll hand over to John now, who will touch on some of the um, portfolio positioning and how it's um, moving um, with all those moving parts I just touched on. Thank you, Matt. And uh, thank you all to all, to all, our, uh, all our shareholders. Um, I guess I'd characterise the state of the portfolio as a game of 3D chess right now. Um, I say that because we're juggling rate movements, we're juggling COVID, and now we're juggling war in Ukraine and Russia. So from that perspective, it makes it awfully difficult to get a clear and confident path as to the shape of the portfolio for, for the next month, let alone for the next six to 12 months. So what we do and what we do best is we're at the coalface daily um, and managing the risk and adapting as we get new information. And that's what we're really focused on right now. When there isn't the clear path, we have to adapt and we have to be ready to change as new information comes. So that's really our focal point today. We've saying that, and since our last update, um, yeah, our portfolio has performed extremely well. So we've taken the opportunity uh, that the dislocation in the market, particularly over the last month, has provided to rotate the portfolio um, to where we see there are some opportunities, not only from a stock-specific perspective, but also from a sectoral perspective. Um, one clear, Two clear characteristics that the portfolio is now demonstrating a lot more than previously is quality and defensive earnings attributes. And that's really where we see... Uh, our safe haven within the portfolio to ride out this volatility over the next next little while. So stocks like Brambles, Endeavour, Tabcorp, Wes Farmers and Treasury Wine are, 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 are positions that we've built recently where we see um, you know, their, their earnings, uh, their ability to withstand the volatility of global events, uh, particularly in the short to medium term, as key drivers within the portfolio. Um, elsewhere, you've heard us previous updates. We've been fairly, uh, fairly resolute in not owning any overvalued tech stocks. Um, what we've seen recently is a slight change to that outlook. Um, the sell-off has provided some opportunities within, that, within those sectors where we think individual stocks um, who have the ability to demonstrate superior earnings uh, can grow into their multiples and have presented opportunities over the recent past. So names like realestate.com, uh, Seek, 
uh, Resumen and James Hardy's, where we think they're market-leading franchises, um, extremely well-positioned, no matter what the macro backdrop provides, where there is somewhat more evaluation support today, we think we, we think these stocks can also be drivers of the portfolio. So we've we've um, we've we've, we've, we've put positions within the portfolio in those, some larger than others, and we'll continue to kind of build on those positions over the next six to twelve months. Um, and I guess p potentially the the broader shape of the portfolio um, to characterise some of the changes that we've done. There's probably slightly less financials than we, than we last updated everyone, and that was during the vault in late last year. Uh, we still like insurers, and we still think they provide those defensive earnings stream, and Anna will touch on some of those. Uh, healthcare is probably a larger weighting more broadly within the portfolio. Uh, and again, Anna could touch on those in a moment, some of the stocks we like there. But staples, inflation beneficiaries uh, are the other areas of the portfolio which have become more, more present and more prominent, I should say, um, to kind of withstand the backdrop that Matt presented. Uh, now, touching on commodities, and I guess this is probably a very much a focal point of the markets right here, right now, given what's happening within Russia and the sanctions that have been imposed uh, on, on, on Russia and, and uh, recently. Now, the first question we need to turn to is um, how long these sanctions will, will, will take place and what is the outlook uh, for commodities from here? And I guess the first point of call that we need to touch on is oil and gas. 40% of Europe's oil and gas, also gas supply comes from Russia. That's going to change, and that's going to change materially going forward. And 11% of the world oil supply comes from Russia, all Russian-linked up companies. So we think uh, going forward, the Australian oil and gas sector is going to be major beneficiaries of this change, and Woodside and Santos are very well positioned to benefit from that. Um, the next few sectors, so aluminium, uh, nickel, uh, coal stocks, so those commodities where in particular nickel, which is 20% of battery-grade material, um, security of supply becomes a clear issue. And as we start to ramp up more and more to green energy and battery materials, Australia, again, is extremely well positioned to supply and provide that security of supply. So we are extremely well positioned from a, from a national standpoint to become a dominant player in that space. Wheat uh, and fertiliser, Russia is the largest wheat exporter. So undoubtedly, we're going to see that come through in food inflation. Uh, as the world scrambles to kind of shore up their wheat supplies and fertiliser, which is used in, 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 the, in, the, in the process of, um, of food. So there's going to be some significant change coming forward. I think what it does potentially do accelerates a shift to green energy uh, a little bit quicker as coal prices start to spike and oil and gas prices start to spike. Uh, security of supply and, and sovereign risk, geopolitical sovereign risk, becomes more and more prominent. Uh, Australia should be a beneficiary from there. And I guess last thing I'll mention is food price and food inflation. We're going to see it. Woolworths and Coles have called it out, uh, and there's no way about it, so no way of avoiding that. So that's going to be something that we're going to be focused on for the near term. Um, I think that's probably a comprehensive uh, wrap-up of how the portfolio is positioned, and maybe I'll pass over to Anna, who can take us through some stock stories. Thanks, John. So as John mentioned, one of the uh, sectors that we like at the moment is consumer staples. We have run a number of event studies looking at previous periods of high inflation, uh, periods before rate hikes when central banks were signalling rate hikes and following rate hikes. And in all of these situations, consumer staples outperforms the market. Uh, within consumer staples, we like the supermarkets. Uh, it makes sense that when inflation is high, consumer balance sheets and budgets are stretched and people eat out less and at home more. And clearly that's good for supermarket revenues. Our preferred exposure within supermarkets is Coles. Coles delivered a really good February result. In particular, it, it showed extreme cost discipline in what was a challenging period with Omicron combined with Christmas. Uh, previously, Coles hasn't been as good as Woolworths at managing its costs. And that's one of the reasons why there's a valuation differential between the two. However, delivering the re result it just did, it brings this... Uh, differential into question, which is one of the reasons why we prefer Coles over Woolworths currently. Another stock I wanted to mention is the largest healthcare name on the ASX, that's CSL Limited. So in December, CSL carried out the largest capital raise to ever occur on the ASX uh, to buy V4 Pharma, which is a Swiss pharmaceutical company uh, specialising in iron deficiency and kidney disease. As you can see from the share price, it has been received with a little bit of scepticism from the market. However, going into January, into the start of Feb, we saw a few green shoots across the business, which suggested that the result might be better than the market was expecting. 
We've since met with management and have even more confidence in the medium-term outlook for the business. They have a number of initiatives in place for plasma collections, which will benefit over the medium term. They're rolling out new, uh, new devices to collect the, the plasma, which will have significant productivity benefits. Uh, and the Securus, which is their flu benefit uh, business, continues to uh, go from strength to strength. I think more importantly than that, it's one of the most high quality names on the ASX with a great management team. So it remains a core holding of ours. The last stock I wanted to mention is Insurer IAG. Now, insurance isn't the first sector you think of when you think of defensive uh, sectors. However, insurance is actually one of the last things that will be cut from the budgets of households and businesses in times of heightened uncertainty. It's a safety blanket. So IAG reported a really good February result. Uh, and we've since met with the management team and we're confident that the legacy issues are behind them and they're now focused entirely on the future of the company, earnings growth and the outlook. They're benefiting from strong rates in the insurance cycle. They benefit from rising rates in the financial market. They have a cost out program and capital management on the way. And we don't think any of this is reflected in the share price. So that's another core holding of ours, IAG Limited. Great. Thank you. Um, that's just... right. Anna, yeah, look, thank you very much. Um, and thanks, everyone. I know there's already been some great questions sent in. Um, so why don't I I'll pass over to Camilla Cox. She's our Senior Corporate Affairs Advisor. Um, and if anyone's got any additional questions, please uh, um, send them in now. Uh, but we do have a lot of questions and, and let's start working through that. Thank you, Camilla. Great. Thanks, Jeff. The first question is actually for you. It's from Jennifer. She says, thanks for the great work, Jeff and team. What do you believe have been some of the factors in listed investment companies, and in particular, Wilson Asset Management companies, in moving from a discount to a premium? Thanks, Jennifer. And, and the good thing is you, you shouldn't thank me. Um, you should thank you know, the, the people, you know, um, you know, Anna, John and Matt, for all their hard work and everyone who's been working with them um, you know, since WAM Leaders was set up. Uh, I, I'm the old guy that's there as chairman, and uh, the uh, yeah, I, I, they're doing all the hard work. So, uh, yeah, thank, thank them. In terms of a, a listed investment company, the I mean, the interesting thing is there's a lot of you know, a little over 100 listed investment companies, and a number of them trade at um, premiums to, to their NTAs, and that's the net tangible assets in theory, what the assets are worth. A number of them trade at discounts. Um, what we think is there's four really you know, main ingredients for listed investment companies to trade at NTA, if not a premium. One is performance, and you'd say, like, with WAM leaders, a big tick, you know, exceptional performance. Another one is a growing stream of fully frank dividends, and with WAM leaders, you know, that, that's been the case. And we, I talked about the profit reserves, so that'll continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. Uh, another one is, you know, to treat like all listed companies, you know, you've got to treat all shareholders with respect. And, and that's, you know, what we what we do. Um, and as I said at the very start, you own this company. So we're, we're here to reporting to you. And the fourth thing is, you know, shareholder engagement, communication uh, and marketing. And, and that's, um, you know, we, we've got nearly 10 people in that area. You know, in the our competitors in that space, um, you know, ones that are larger than us, you know, would have, you know, some of them have a tenth of that you know, capability. So we've really got a significant um, you know, group there. Um, so uh, I, I did, I did, I did sneak a peek at the questions. So I, I'm, I'm actually, you asked the next question. <laughs> Camilla, and, and this this sort of ties into this the first question as well, but you asked me the second <laughs> Thanks. question. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so with you again, Gary has asked, uh, WAM Leaders has obviously posted strong investment portfolio outperformance, but he notices that the total shareholder return is down year to date. Can you explain why this is? Yeah, and, and this is for Jennifer and Gary. The um, With WAM Leaders, you know, six months ago, we were trading at quite a good premium to NTA. Now, we'd gone from trading at a discount to NTA over a number of years. You know, um, really, after getting that dividend up, the performance, you know, tightening up the share register, 
that WAM leaders went to a good premium and it was trading at you know, 10% plus premium to NTA. Uh, and what's happened over this last little period, the last six months, it's actually gone from that big premium to NTA to be trading just a, just around NTA. And, and so, you know, if you're looking to buy WAM leaders, it's obviously good value um, around here because you're paying NTA. Now, I like paying NTA or below NTA. Um, and um, and so that's, you know, with Gary, that's that's why the performance, you know, has been, you know, the share price performance has gone from a premium to be trading it around NTA even though the underlying performance has been very solid. And my view is it will trade back to a good premium to NTA. We just, um, we just need a little bit more, um, you know, just, just to settle the share register. You know, there have been you know, various people where we, we raise some capital and the, there'll be people put money in and then for some reason they change their mind in a month or two's time and they're sellers. So it just takes time for the share registers to tighten up. Um, You'll see, look, WAM Capital, well, actually, WAM Research is probably the most, you know, the, the largest premium. You know, the other day, I think it was close to a 50% premium to NTA. Now, we did have a period where we traded at a 20 or 30% discount with WAM Research, and that was, and for seven years that occurred, and it just took a long time for that share register to tighten up, but eventually that happens, um, and then they get to NTA, if not a premium. So, I would have thought, yeah, you know, you've got all this extremely good performance, and you look at some of the, you know, some of the competition, you know, the Afix and the Argos. You really don't have the performance that WAM Leaders has, and, and WAM Leaders can be a lot more nimbler in terms of moving the portfolio around. But looking at a similar investment universe, those larger companies, um, and and those, you know, two I mentioned, they're trading at very large premiums at the moment. So I'm very confident that the premium will come back. Um, but it, it just sometimes it just takes time. Thanks, Jeff. Matt, this next one is for you from a shareholder called John. He says, with oil at these high levels and the price of fuel starting to bite into consumers' wallets, people may be looking around for alternatives such as electric vehicles. Do the WAM leaders team have lithium and nickel on their radar at all? Yeah, great question. Um, <clears throat> obviously, we're, we're pretty uh, su supportive for the oil and gas sector um, and think there's incredible value there. But we do have lithium, nickel um, exposure and copper, really. I mean, copper is probably the um, probably the, the one with the less flair, I guess, around EVs. But copper is highly intensive um, in EVs. So I think copper is a great way to play it. But we do have lithium. We've got Pilbara. Um, we've got IGO. Independence Group for nickel. Um, obviously, BHP have nickel and copper as well, and we've got Oz Minerals too. Um, the other company as well, South32, has um, manganese. So definitely playing it, not in a huge way, because I think it will be a long process to um, transition, but we're definitely there in some of those stocks. Great. Thanks, Matt. John, this next one's for you. It's from Andrew. He asks, how will fund managers respond if or when they believe that the materials or energy sectors have run their course or are fully valued? Uh, thank you, Camilla, and thank you, Andrew, for the question. Uh, the short answer to that is obviously they will sell, but I'll answer it with a bit more detail. First, I think there's a lot, there's a long pathway here for those sectors. Firstly, if you consider the Australian energy sector, it's underperformed its global peers for a number of reasons over the past six to 12 months. So first, I think there's a material catch-up trade for the Australian energy sector. Um, something we touched on earlier around uh, geopolitical risk and security of supply. I think Woodside and Woodside and Santos in particular, um, there is a material catch-up play as you start to see a lot of the global majors divest uh, assets um, that have any sort of association with Russia. Uh, and you'd start to see Australia and even Papua New Guinea become a safe haven for oil and gas. So uh, although the commodity themselves may drift back over the next six to 12 months as, as stability emerges in, in Russia and Ukraine, I think uh, you'll start to see the Australian energy sector garner a higher re-rating from a, from a multiple perspective. So we have a little bit more confidence around um, the energy sector in particular. Uh, around commodities, again, the, the million dollar question is how long do these sanctions last and do they come on at any time? Um, same answer again around security supply for, uh, for green energy. I think uh, nickel uh, is going to be, a, a, it's, it's already tight and aluminium as well. The, the both uh, supply in both those two 
commodities is particularly tight. So Rio, AWC, some of the stocks that talked about independence in particular, uh, we think there is still um, some protection to the multiple and the valuations of those stocks for some time. But, you know, I think uh, some of the non-producing uh, guys are probably more susceptible to uh, a sell-off if uh, the commodity prices start to pair back. So I think for us, it's finding the lowest cost um, producers in the sectors, uh, hold on to those and look at it. And, and as, as we do certainly expect commodity prices to kind of pull back at some time, but we think China, um, you know, the news there continues to be slightly soft. So when you get soft news out of China, they stimulate. So we think BHP and Rio, South 32 have, uh, have some particularly long runways in those sectors. So uh, short answer is people will sell them, but I think there's a way of insulating yourself from any sort of uh, pullback quickly. Thanks, John. We'll, we'll stay with you again. This is from Jill and Chris. They've asked, what is your opinion on Woodside and who wins from the sale of oil and gas assets of BHP to Woodside? I've got the answer that everyone will be happy. It's a win-win for both companies. Um, you look, short term, it's a win for BHP shareholders, um, but longer term, it's, it's, it's a material win for Woodside. So uh, let me unpick that a little bit. Uh, Woodside's assets, there were some questions in the market around the quality of their assets and the production profile of those assets for the next call 18 months. What BHP's assets do provides Woodside with some market leading assets, um, some liquids producing and some gas producing assets globally. Uh, so from here on, Woodside will probably have some of the highest quality assets of any oil major and gas major in the world. So what it does, it certainly puts Woodside on that global scale as, as one of the top five players albeit maybe higher. Um, so from that perspective, Woodside is a longer-term winner. Uh, from a BHP shareholder perspective, and as, as our largest uh, holding in our portfolio, um, it's a great way to actually uh, address some of the ESG concerns that many share, many uh, market participants have. Uh, so you clean up uh, BHP's portfolio, it becomes a future, future metals-focused business. Um, gets rid of any sort of oil and gas concern or ESG concern from that perspective, and then you get a re-rate. So, again, it's a really a win-win uh, for BHP in the first instance and for Woodside shareholders in the long run. Great. Thank you. And just one more for you. This one's from Graham. He says, will you be buying any stocks with the name Charter Hall in it? There's about 16 of them, but um, <laughs> I guess the, the main stock, Charter Hall, they've made some interesting moves recently, and I guess... Um, if we take a step back and consider what the charter hall businesses do provide, they've over-earned, and I use this word carefully, they've over-earned over the last few years as the right interest rate cycles worked in their favour. Their ability to mark-to-mark -mark assets up and generate performance fees uh, from the interest rate environment is something that won't be able to be replicated uh, over the next two to three years. So they've stepped outside of their comfort zone and you know, in making acquisition um, of a fund manager and, look, Various market participants have different views on it, but what it does, it's a diversification from what their traditional investment base. So our biggest concern, and we don't own any charter hall today, is the is how they're going to replicate those performance fees that they've generated over the last two to three years, and what happens when the rate environment does steepen slightly to their mark to market. So we've we, we've 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 stayed out of charter hall. It has sold off a lot, and something that we kind of consciously look at a fair bit. Some of the other assets are the Charter Hall Long Whale REIT um, and a few of those other ones. They're very defensive businesses. Um, and as Matt was pointing out, if the rate cycle is a little bit flatter than what we've seen, um, if these things sell off, then potentially they does provide an opportunity, but we're not there at the moment. Thanks, John. Jeff, we'll turn back to you now. Peter has asked what the current cash position of the portfolio is and do the WAN Leaders team see this changing anytime soon? Well, the good thing is that's uh, look. Thank you, you know, Peter, for asking me. But really, the people that are that are driving this boat, I'm I'm just sitting at the back, you know, relaxing, <laughs> you know, like yourself as a shareholder. Now, let, let, why don't I pass to you know, Matt, who can take you through that? Yeah, thanks, Jeff, and thanks for the question. Um, the way we see the WAM leaders portfolio is we think we can invest through the cycle. So our cash lever is fairly well not used as a defensive tool. We can position through sectors. What would get us to a cash position higher than, you know, traditional levels? We'd really need to see something that would break equities in a very clear manner, and that is becomes what happens is when markets fall, you get the sector rotation. To make us move to higher cash would have to be an asset allocation decision, a broad one across 
the industry or financial market participants. That would have to be a very large event. Looking forward this year, we've got uh, a couple of large events. We've got a Fed rate cycle and we've got quantitative tightening, which will probably be announced in um, probably in May uh, from the, the US Central Bank. So for a June uh, liftoff on quantitative tightening, they are two pretty major events. Uh, will it be enough for an asset allocation decision? Undecided at this point. So, um, yeah, our cash level will be around that 4 or 5%. Um, and like we touched on at the start, there, there is a chance of a dovish short-term tilt. So we could wind our cash down a little bit lower uh, to try and capture some of that dovish tilt. Um, but, yeah, I think you should expect us to invest through the cycle um, our investment process is very nimble and uh, allows us to invest through the cycle. And you can really invest um, through sectors to, you know, position more defensive or position more aggressively. So um, I, I think that's a big decision. If we can see a clear catalyst about an asset allocation decision being made within equities, then we will pull that trigger. Um, so we're watching that quite closely this year. Um, but so far... Um, our cash levels are largely unchanged. Thanks, Matt. And I will turn to you. We've got a question from David. He asks, based on the current flood fire and the increase of effect of climate change, is owning insurance companies a wise decision at the moment? <laughs> it's a really good question. And we actually often joke between ourselves that since we've had a few insurance companies in the portfolio, we'll become weather watchers. Uh, but the reality is it's a lot more sentiment uh, based than it is actually on their financial performance. Uh, in the last couple of days, the insurance have taken a hit, as we've seen this devastating footage out of southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales, which is understandable. But the reality is, insurance companies are in the business of playing ca uh, paying claims. If there are no claims, it incentivizes people to stop paying their premiums or downgrade their covers. And there's going to be a lot more people going home, logging into their insurance portal and checking that their premiums are paid, that their sum insureds are adequate and they might be upgrading their cover. So from a financial perspective, over the longer term, you actually do need events to keep uh, insurers in business. Uh, for an IAG perspective, um, they came out this morning on the ASX and said that their total exposure to the weather events is 95 million. Beyond that, uh, their reinsurers have to stump up for the cost. So they have a quota share arrangement with Berkshire Hathaway, Swiss Re, Munich Re, which smooths this earnings profile. And then they have reinsurance arrangements on top of that. So their actual exposure is quite limited. Um, it is 95 million, so it sounds like a lot of money, but it is still within their allowances for the year. So there's no change to the actual fundamentals and the earnings of IG at this stage. Thanks, Anna. Just staying on the topic, Martha and Neville have asked, what exposure does IAG have to the current Queensland floods? So that's the 95 million. So they are on the hook for 95 million. Beyond that, their reinsurers pay. It's within their allowances, no change to earnings, but on track for their full year result. Great, thanks. Matt, we'll turn to you. This one is from Anders. He says, there seems to be renewed M&A activity in the energy industry at the moment. Does this make ORG and AGL type stocks more attractive? Yeah, great question. Um, AGL obviously have had a indicative non-binding bid from uh, a consortium. Um, we probably think Origin is uh, the likely one. I mean, that that's a very attractive business with, you know, two distinct parts. Um, they have the APLNG, which is linked to um, the, the rise in LNG prices, and then the energy markets business again, which is quite valuable. Um, but what makes it hard, I guess, for acquisitions in this space is government policy because government policy will ultimately dictate the course of all these companies. But if we get some clarity around that, these companies are trading at very, very cheap multiples. And um, we think Origin is a much better company um, forward-facing versus AGL. So, yeah, 100% expect to see activity. Origin got some great businesses uh, which are growing very fast. Um, so, yeah, Expect more action in this space, 100%. Thanks, Matt. John, this one's from Jen. She asks, what are your views on companies which are suppliers of building materials? Uh, thanks, Jen. I appreciate the question. Uh, 
there's probably two schools of thought to kind of take into consideration here. Are they exposed to new builds uh, or are they exposed to uh, renovations and remodels? So uh, we've recently taken the sell-off to get a little bit more exposure to James Hardy's, other stocks like Reliance, Adelaide Brighton, uh, Boral. They've all had some significant pullbacks as people expect that new builds uh, slow down over the next 12, 18, 24 months as that rate cycle steepened, as Matt was discussing earlier. Um, but what we do know is that demand uh, is still strong in the building sector. Uh, we think the cycle will be a little bit more protracted than others have thought. So we think over the next 12 months in particular, we should still see strong results out of James Hardy's in particular. Um, but for us, what we do focus on is who has the best cost control mechanisms as inflationary pressures do come to that sector and how is their ability to pass on that price to the consumer uh, or to their, uh, to, to their retailers. And what we focus on there is, you know, you, what you've got to consider is, is they're switching of products and how, where they sit on the cost curve. And for us, James Hardy's is a standout because it's a, cheaper than a lot of the alternatives. Their cost, their, their cost control is superior to the, to, to the vast majority of their competitors, particularly in the US. So Hardy's for us is a clear winner in that sector. Um, traditional Australian names like Boral have shown that they had an inability to make money in the last cycle. So we, we question their ability to make money in this cycle. Uh, Adelaide Brighton came out recently with a really good result. We're actually going to catch up with them in the not too distant future. So we'll be able to provide a bit more perspective there at a later date. Um, but where we sit, James Hardy's will do well and Reliance at the current levels is looking cheap. And it's one that we're doing work on. Uh, given their exposure to the R&R market. So it's 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 a buy beware. Make sure you do your work on each of the individual companies. Um, yeah, so that's probably our view on, on building materials right now. Thanks, John. Anna, we've got one for you from Alexander. He's asked, have you any thoughts on Ramsey Healthcare and Prometicus? If I'm saying that right. Sure. I'll start with Prometicus. Uh, so we don't hold Prometicus in our fund. We tend to focus on the larger, more liquid healthcare names uh, and also the profitable names um, that have earnings multiples. Uh, Ramsey, we really like Ramsey. Ramsey's a holding of ours in the WAM Leaders portfolio. They are firmly in the reopening or opening bucket of the portfolio. They've had a really tough couple of years with the on and off uh, restrictions of elective surgeries globally. But that is there is in there's light at the end of the tunnel. Volumes are improving. COVID costs are reducing, and we think the earnings growth over the next few years is certainly robust. They've also recently acquired a company called Elysium, which is a mental health company in the UK, and that's a really big growth area. So we like their foray into that space as well. Thanks, Anna. Jeff, back to you. James has asked, "What is your view on Magellan?" Okay. Well, the uh, I'm James. I'm giving you that that view from a as another fund manager, um, not as a analyst you know, doing detailed analysis and, and working out you know, whether it's cheap or not. Um, the you know, obviously there's been a lot of disruption. Yeah, you know, the market doesn't like uncertainty. Um, the you'd assume the negative impact on their fund flows. I would say you know, will probably take six months to run through. Uh, and you know, if I was looking for a buying opportunity, to me, you know, that's to me that's that's what I've sort of got in the back of my mind. You know, whether I'm waiting, you know, whether whether I need to you know, be a little bit earlier than that, you know, because if you see funds, you know, funds growing again, yeah, you know, then obviously everyone's going to extrapolate what the growth will be. Um, so to me, it's more a bit of a timing thing. You know, you just really want to see how you know, their funds are, a perform, but also you know, whether what the level of redemptions are, um, and see that work its way you know, through the system. Um, and as I said, I, I think in about six months' time that would have occurred. And you really want to, if you're going to, if you're going to buy Magellan, you want to buy them. Um, you know, before you start seeing their funds increasing again. You know, it's a, you know, there has been a bit, a lot of dislocation. You know, it, you've got to remember again, and I think I was quoted in one of the papers you know, about Magellan. You know, the funny thing is at, at Wilson Asset Management, everyone thinks I'm picking the stocks. And, and this is a great example of just showing you 
Um, you know, you're, you're meeting the people that are investing the money for WAM leaders, and the same is the case for WAM, you know, WAM Global, you know, WAM Capital, WAM Alternates. Um, you know, the, the, the place I do, you know, I am picking this, you know, the stocks is you know, WAM Strategic Value. Um, you know, that's when we're buying listed investment companies or undervalued assets um, at a discount to NTA. Um, but yeah, so with Hamish, I know um, you know everyone would have thought Hamish did all the work, but they've got 35 investment professionals. Now we've got um, yeah we've got 14 uh, soon to go to probably you know 15 or 16 investment professionals managing all that money. Uh, and you look at it in terms of advantage, you know, from the ratio, they were running about a billion dollars for 30, with 35, and we're we're running, you know, say five point you know, five billion with you know 15. So so you, you could argue we've got, you know, in terms of power, investment power per billion, you know, we've got significantly more investment power per billion. Um, uh, but the yeah, so to me with Magellan, you'd probably want to give it a little bit of time. Great, thank you, Jeff. Matt, we've got one for you from Gary. He's asked, did WAM leaders increase its shareholding in BHP following the London delisting? Um, thanks, Gary. Uh, BHP, we actually were very, very heavy overweight pre the listing because we knew there was a big index change to happen. And luckily it coincided with um, our, our changing view on China as well through um, you know, they went through a very tight period um, in 2021 and we knew they'd be unwinding that. So the, all the stars aligned um, and we were holding, it was around 12% of the portfolio in BHP um, pre the listing. Um, so we were very well positioned. We saw a lot of the, uh, in the lead up, a lot of scrambling by fund managers buying BHP. So in the end, we were overweight pre the listing. We gradually sold down um during that process and now it's back up around that level again because we are quite constructive on on the um iron ore sector in particular china they really um changed the narrative around tightening to sort of loosening in their um, economy so um it's back up at that level now thanks matt and another one for you stefan has written in again he's asked what investments are you focusing on to hedge against inflation risk uh thanks stefan um in Inflation is generally not great for equities. It's hard to get good inflation hedges in equities. Um, generally, you'd focus on precious metals, but unfortunately for precious metals, we were in this abnormal period of, you know, really negative real rates, which is a great um, driver of, of valuation or price for uh, precious metals. So that would be a normal place to hide, but in a hiking cycle, you probably don't want to go near gold Um in any great deal as an inflation hedge. Um, that could change if there's a, a dovish tilt um, by central banks. But at this point, um, you'd probably leave precious metals alone. There's a bit of a war premium in there as well at the moment due to the conflict. Um, so you'd look for companies, generally staples do pretty well um, in inflation environment. Also companies which are linked, have inflation-linked contracts in them. So one that stands out is TCL, Transurban Group. Um, even Telstra, the MBN payments are inflation-linked. So you, we're trying to find those gems which are really have that protection. Uh, but generally, industrials do pretty poorly in an inflation environment. So you really got to hunt around and probably stay on those ones I mentioned. I, I guess the biggest one as well as straight commodities. Uh, straight commodities are a great inflation hedge. Um, and, and we've got quite a few of those, uh, in particular BHP, Rio, uh, more on the iron ore there then South 32 Oz Minerals as other big holdings. Um, but they're generally your best bets and best places to hide. Thanks, Matt. John, a question for you from Warren. He's asked, what is your view on Telstra's current share price and future dividend earnings upside? And does WAM leaders hold any other names in this sector? Uh, thank you, Warren. I might actually get Anna to help me with this one because she recently <laughs> caught up with Telstra. But uh, look, we do own, own Telstra and we think it's the standout within the sector. Um, they continue to take market share. Their product offering is second to none in the, in the market, even though others are trying to play catch up. They've still got to, they, they've got to jump on the entire market. So we think it's sub four dollars. It's, uh, it, it's incredible value. Uh, maybe Anna could kind of talk a little bit more about the pricing and the strength that they've got in the market. Yeah, I think those are the main points. So Telstra's really gone from being a dividend yield story to a growth story as the ARPU market or the, the mobile market has bottomed and uh, 
ARPU is increasing, so that's the pricing per, per unit, as well as there being rationality in the mobile market. They have ongoing sell-downs of some of their infrastructure businesses, which are uh, gaining really high multiples. So there are a few catalysts for Telstra. Yeah, and, and broadly elsewhere in the sector, the only one that we've given some consideration to, and we're quite, yeah, the, the WAM Capital owner, but we're still not quite there, is TPG uh, or Vodafone um, in its current form. Uh, we think they're a lot more heavily exposed to uh, inbound tourism as a, as a big segment of their earnings driver. And as that starts to rebound, uh, it'll be interesting to see what Optus do to respond or even Telstra to kind of capture that share. But it probably represents somewhere between 3 and 5% of their earnings. Uh, they have had to invest heavily into infrastructure and investment, which has kind of crimped their returns. Um, so it's getting more, more interesting, but we think the easier way to play it right here right now is Telstra. Um, and then there's a bunch of others like Unity Wireless and and the like where we just think the valuation relative to Telstra doesn't doesn't have the appeal for us. So we'll just stick to the best in class, as we said, focused on quality. I think the other thing about Telstra as well is the roaming revenues. I don't think that's really taken into the share price at the moment and that is inevitably going to come back. So another factor. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, John. Jeff, we'll turn to you for this question from Cameron. He's asked, can you please explain why we keep such a large profits reserve and carry dividend coverage for several years? What's stopping us from paying this out and releasing franking credits via a special dividend? Yeah, hey, really good question. Uh, and as a fellow shareholder, you know, of course, we we'd, and all the sort of hard work we did at the last election in terms of making sure franking stayed as it is, as Paul Keating wanted it to be, you know, as a great... Um, a great structure for Australian capital markets. The um, the situation is we've got the profit reserve, but we the we usually haven't paid the tax on that profit. So that profit reserve, you know, we have at the moment. That's necessarily that's a it's an after tax, but it's not a tax paid profit reserve. Um, so, you know, we actually couldn't pay a big fully frank dividend. So, you know, hypothetically, if it was, you know, 30-odd cents, say if we paid a 30-cent dividend to you, you know, so I think at the moment we've got a little bit of franking. So you might get a couple of cents franked and the rest is unfranked. And what happens is as we turn the portfolio over, you know, then we, then we realise, um, you know, the tax and then we pay the tax. And then, obviously, the tax we pay plus the dividends we get that are fully franked allows us to pay you know, the fully franked dividends. So, yeah, if we if we had you know, thirty cents of franking, then it's another then it's another question. The fact is, we don't have that amount of franking, so it wouldn't be in your interest. Thank you, Jeff. And just staying with you, a comment from Jill. She's recently read that some people consider LICs more of a risk when they get bigger as they can't be as agile and it excludes them from certain investments. Do you have any comments on this? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting scenario. Um, and, and, and to me, in funds management world, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's general that you know, if you're managing a million dollars, it's probably easier you know, to perform with a million dollars than if you're managing $10 million. Um, the thing is, what we've found is, and you've got to remember when Wilson Asset Management started, uh, and it was only me, we actually were managing a million dollars. So each time it doubled you know, to two million, to four million, et cetera, you know, we had to work out what the best way of managing that money was and and as you know, as I said, we're managing five and a half billion on behalf of 120,000 shareholders that you know, we're indebted to because they allow us to manage money on their behalf. You know, the, the, we've had to really focus on how we manage that money as we've grown. Uh, and what you find is when you get bigger, you actually get some significant benefits. Um, and one of the big benefits is you, you look at say African Argo. One of the things about being large, and, and here you're talking about AFIC, which is, you know, say a $9 billion uh, listed investment company. When I looked uh, a few weeks ago, it was trading at 15% plus premium NTA. So, there are, and when we saw um, Sol Patterson's um, take over Milton, the interesting thing was it was just taking over an unlisted investment company. You'd think 
sold Patterson's, nothing would happen to the share price, but it rallied about 10%. So there actually is there's some significant benefits for investors of investing in larger listed investment companies. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of a premium for that. And if you look at a lot of research that's, um, that's undertaken, they say, you know, the, there's smaller listed investment companies sort of have a bit of a discount because they're smaller, which is interesting. Um, but in terms of how you manage that money, you know, it's really up to the skill of the individuals. And what we've found is, you know, as our funds have grown, then our relevance in the market, not only from the investors, the, you know, the, the, the um, financial planners wanting to invest and wanting liquidity, but also to the investment banks, you know, the companies and the brokers we deal with. You know, you know, we, we get, you know, back when I started, like, what, 23-odd years ago, I, I would get the last call when there was capital being raised because we were the smallest. Now, now we get one of the early calls. So our, our quality of information has grown exponentially as our funds have grown exponentially. So it's not that simple, you know, just to say you're a little bit bigger. It's, um, you know, there's some, like everything, I suppose, there's always some pluses and minuses. Thanks, Jeff. John, we'll turn back to you. This question's from Elena. She asks, do you have a view on the SOL conglomerate? And uh, thank you, Camilla. And uh, Jeff just touched on Solpats then. And maybe I'll just add quickly to what Jeff just said. We found with WAM leaders, as we've gotten bigger, our performance has gotten better as we focus more and liquidity has become uh, a bit more of a strength for us. So we kind of agree with exactly what Jeff said and look forward to kind of continuing to grow the thumb. Uh, just on Solpats, uh, maybe touching on what Jeff did said this earlier about uh, the acquisition of Milton, I guess I'll be fairly direct on this one. Uh, it doesn't really attract much institutional investment. Um, Solpats, the team over there, they're a wonderful team. Um, they, they've, they've shown a tremendous track record of actually finding little gems over the years into, and, and riding them until they get to big gems. Um, but from our perspective, it's a conglomerate of small caps and it makes it very difficult A, to invest in for a number of reasons. Firstly, liquidity. Uh, secondly, transparency. Um, and then also there's some ESG concerns in a couple of the investments in the portfolio. Uh, but like I said, they're a great organisation. So it would be very difficult for Solpats to close its discount to the underlying assets. And a lot of conglomerates have that issue. Seven Group Holdings is one uh, and Wes Farmers for a long time. Um, but as they get bigger and the, and the underlying companies get bigger and your ability to value those underlying companies gets better, um, you should start to see a re-rating. Uh, one anomaly with Solpats last year was included in the ASX 200 index and saw it spike to $40 um, and then quickly revert back down to, to where it is today. And that was driven from liquidity. As index managers were forced to buy it, uh, they sent it to $40. And as that buying subsided and uh, some of the more opportunistic hedge funds and the like sold into it, it kind of caused this quick rapid derating. So what we look for is you know, probably a little bit more granularity around Sol's underlying assets, what they continue to do with Milton and a few of the other investments. But what we struggle with is that conglomerate discount and the conglomerate of smaller cap companies, it makes it difficult for us. Thanks, John. And Matt, a question from David. He's asked, what macro conditions are you reading for this year? Thanks, David. Um, great question. This could change within 24 hours or maybe within two hours. But anyway, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, our base case this year, obviously, we're in a tightening phase. We think the forward market, so the, the amount of interest rate hikes in the next 12 months is a little bit too aggressive. We think that will pair back um, in the short term. But we think the dominating theme will be a tightening and a withdrawal of liquidity, which is generally negative for equities. Um, um, but we know how to position for this and, and we can move it quite quickly. So, yes, I, I categorise it as a slowing growth environment, you know, a high inflation environment, a tightening environment and a withdrawal of liquidity. Um, obviously, the Ukraine thing could change all of that. Um, so far, it hasn't yet. It's probably put some higher inflation into the forward curve, into, into the break-evens when we look out. Um, the market is saying inflation is going to be higher and interest rates are pairing back a little bit on, on the front end. So, um, yeah, macro environment looks tough. Uh, there's no question about it. Um, it really does look quite tough this year from a macro point of view. But like I said, 
Macro is one of my great loves. Um, hopefully my wife isn't listening. Um, obviously she's my greatest love, but um, Macro would be right up there. And your kids. Um, and, oh, my kids too. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, jeez, Matt. Uh, it's, it's like, he works hard. Matt works hard. Work yeah. is your great love, hey? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been sleeping that well. As, as you know, all of us here, like, we, we take this um, job very seriously. Um, we, we've been up watching markets, you know, all night. Um, getting up at four in the morning, watching markets because we we live and breathe this, um, and and we hope we can do the best job for you. So, um, yeah, it's a full full time commitment for us. So, um, yeah, the macro environment is challenging. There's no way around it. It's it's just there's two things: the path of interest rate hikes and where they settle the neutral rate. And we just watch those by the hour um, and and just trying to manoeuvre the portfolio around these events and, and movements in all the underlying assets, uh, which some people don't focus on in equities, but um, they're a great signal to try and position your portfolio. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the macro call at the moment. Thanks, Matt. And for our final question, I'll pass to John and Anna. Harvey's asked, uh, he notes in your top holdings <laughs> in recent results that financials are 30%. He's asked what opportunities you're seeing here. And then in the same uh, sector, Janet's asked, what are your outlooks on banks? Cool. Uh, thank you for both those questions. Yeah, we'll kind of maybe do the, all three of us might help in answering this one. Uh, look, I kind of as we discussed earlier in the outset around the portfolio, um, a lot of our positioning did particularly well in December, January and, and for February. And uh, financials was a big driver of that part of, the, of the, our performance. Uh, recently, we've recycled um, some of those names into a few other sectors like Staples and, and some of those quality defensive names and, and um, some of those you know, stock-specific uh, high PE stories. So financial weighting has come down within the portfolio, but that's not to say there isn't opportunities there. It's more stock-specific. Um, uh, you know, maybe Anna can talk a bit about um, the banks in that particular. Yeah, so NAV is still a clear standout for us. They have a great management team, cost initiatives, and a business banking focus. And particularly that business banking side, we think is key in uh, calendar year 22, as we think credit growth will be more muted given a bit of steam is coming out of the housing market. Yeah, and I guess the thing with the banks is everyone was like, how far are NIMS going to fall? And we saw the, for the first time in maybe three quarters um, a clear path out where NIMs are going to increase at the back end of this year. So um, the banking NIM decline is over. Um, we are underweight banks at the moment, but I'd, I'd probably bet we'd start turning overweight in the next few months, but we've just got to wait and see because loan growth is quite strong. Property prices, uh, the embedded uh, property prices within the books of the banks is so strong, like a, a house price correction, uh, you know, 5 10% wouldn't, touch the side so um yeah bank names will get better this year um so we could go overweight later in the next few months potentially so and we still have material overweight positions in iag as anna talked about and qbe uh we kind of lightened qbe into the result and as the sell-off kind of present another opportunity so we got back in there and iag got down to low 420s and kind of we didn't really have a, too much of a position now it's a sizable position uh following that opportunity uh some of the names that we exited were computer share and challengers are, we haven't exited fully but it's, it's a lot smaller than what it was uh just because the sheer outperformance and some good strong results that those guys had uh but you know that we kind of they hit valuation targets for us and we just recycled those cash into other opportunities but yeah look, we it's stock specific now so nab qbe ig probably where we 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 have our bets laid uh and if there is any sort of uh you know opportunities we'll be looking at those quickly Thanks, guys, and thanks to everyone who wrote in questions. I'll pass to Jeff for any closing words. Yes, look, and, and thanks, everyone. And as Matt and the guys said earlier, you, you know they are passionate about managing your money. You know, we all are passionate about that. Um, my wife you know, said to me you know, last week, you know, she said, geez, you, you, you know, seem to be up in the middle of the night. And... She said, what were you doing at 3 a.m.? And I said, well, I just went upstairs and I was watching. You know, that was the first night of the the invasion. And you know, obviously, you know, it is a you know, 24-hour job. And you know, the um, you know, we've, we've got a lot of responsibility in terms of managing a significant amount of capital on all your behalves. 
So thank you again, you know, for Matt, you know, for John and Anna for you know, doing all that hard work. Thank you, Camilla, for you know, really helping on that shelter engagement communication and you know, did a fantastic job with the questions today. Um, taking over from Olivia, uh, the, uh, I think Olivia will have to elbow you out to, you know, to, get, to get the position back. Um, and, and, and shareholders, please, um, if you do want to listen to this in a bit more detail, um, the, the webinar will be on our website shortly. Uh, always be in touch. This is your company. Any ideas, suggestions um, or any feedback or questions, you know, please, um, you know, please contact us. And, um, yeah, and great to speak to you. Stay sa safe and let's hope that everything that's happening in Eastern Europe um, gets, gets sorted out incredibly quickly. Thank you.